want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We've been walking through Revelation for uh, quite a number of months now. We're getting towards the end of the book. And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Revelation 19. We're going to pick things up at verse 11 today. If you don't have a Bible, I do want to encourage you to bring it. I think it's helpful and a good discipline just to be able to look and see in the Scripture uh, what we're looking at so that uh, you're investigating along with uh, as you listen to what God has laid on my heart to share with you. Um, we're going to be looking at Revelation 19, verses 11 uh, to 21. I remember in 1984, uh, Ronald Reagan was President of the United States, and his wife Nancy launched what was called a Just Say No campaign. Some of you will remember that. Uh, there was Just Say No posters and advertisements all over TV. It was, it was aimed at uh, warning people of the dangers of illegal drug use and, and reducing that. There was all kinds of ads that came out. There were ads that came out with a, a frying pan and an egg frying in it and say, it said, this is your brain on drugs. And I remember as a young teen thinking, oh, I found a t-shirt that I thought was kind of clever. It had a picture of a frying pan with an egg and it said, if this is your brain on drugs, then this is your brain with two strips of bacon and a piece of toast. And it had a breakfast plate with an egg and some bacon and toast. Um, but there's all kinds of that going on. Just say no. This, this, uh, it was part of America's war on drugs. Now, the war on drugs certainly didn't start with, with Nancy Reagan and the Just Say No campaign. It actually officially was declared by President Nixon in 1971. He's the first one that declared war on drugs and said that, that illegal drug use was public enemy number one. In 1973, he started a new administration, the, the Drug Enforcement Administration. And from its humble beginnings, it has grown to an agency whose budget today is well over $2 billion each year. Now, with all that said, I want to ask you a question. After 47 years of this war on drugs and billions upon billions upon billions of dollars invested in this war, how many of you have great confidence that this war is going to be won? Anyone? Now, I'm not here to pass judgment on a war on drugs or to offer any solutions. I simply want to paint a picture of, uh, of what seems to be a war there that, that we don't necessarily have much reason to have confidence in. I mean, drug use uh, and drug trade in the U.S., just speaking of that, one country continues today. The opioid crisis is, is an epidemic the worst in the nation's history, killing hundreds of thousands of people. And so as we think about this war on drugs, we don't have a lot of confidence that it's going to end well. We, we hope that it will help improve lives, that it will save lives, that it will reduce drug use. But do we have confidence that this war will, will go well, that it will win, that it will hit its objective? Now this morning we continue our study in the Revelation and we come to a text that is often referred to as the last battle, this cosmic war. And here we encounter a, a vision that will implant within us as God's people absolute confidence when it comes to its outcome. Absolute confidence. It's not in question. It is the battle, the war between Christ, the King of Kings, and all the forces of evil. Now, before we turn to our text, let me remind you of the territory that we've covered over the last number of weeks. Uh, over the last uh, four chapters, chapters 15, 16, 17, and 18, we have been presented with uh, visions of God's judgment 
That has dominated those four chapters. That is, first we, we saw the outpouring of seven bowls of wrath with, with which God's judgment is said to be complete. Uh, then, after the seventh bowl is poured out, the next two chapters, chapters 17 and 18, kind of take us around and, and flesh out what that seventh bowl looks like more fully. First, we, we see the harlot, the prostitute, riding a scarlet beast who is destroyed. And then we, we read the, the threefold lament as the kings of the earth and the, the merchants and the merchant marine all mourn and, and cry out, whoa, 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 as they see Babylon burning. Through these chapters, what has been clearly revealed is that Rome has seduced the nations and, and corrupted them with her idolatries and her injustices. She has gotten filthy rich off the backs of other nations and off the backs of others through her oppressive economic policies. She has led people into false worship, particularly with the cult of the emperor declaring this 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 call to declare the emperor as Lord and Savior. She has killed the people of God. She is drunk, we read, not with wine. She is drunk with the blood of the saints. Thus, because of Rome's rejection of God, because of Rome's arrogance, because of Rome's uh, defiance of God in all that is right, she will be judged. God's wrath will be poured out upon her. She will get her just desserts. Now last week we walked through the first part of Revelation 19, verses 1 to 10. And the picture that we saw last week, if you were here, was quite different than what we had walked through the previous four chapters. Uh, rather than a picture of judgment, we saw a picture of a marvelous, great celebration. Remember, a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Not just once, but three times. Hallelujah! 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 And also the, the uh, four living creatures and the 24 elders around the throne of the one who sits upon the throne that is above every other throne. Uh, amen, hallelujah. This great celebration. And it culminated in what was the wedding supper of the Lamb. A great banquet, a great feast, a party. I said that, that we have a, a partying God, that this party, this celebration, will be a party that surpasses every other party you and I have ever encountered, uh, leaving it in its dust. And remember God's perspective on those invited to this party, to this banquet, to this dinner. He said, blessed are you. Blessed are all those who are invited. Remember, you lucky bums. From God's perspective, there is nothing greater for us than to be invited to this dinner. Now, I also want to remind you of a few things about the book of Revelation more generally. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, it is from Jesus, and it is about Jesus, and we will see that uh, really clearly today. I've argued that this is not a chronological play-by-play -play breakdown of, of history in advance. This isn't telling us exactly what to look for in the future specific events, but rather it is given by Jesus to John for the churches first in, in, in AD 96, the end of the first century in the province of Asia, in a time where they have already begun, some of them, to experience suffering at the hands of Rome and where things are about to get worse. That all those who refuse to worship the beast, that is, those who, who resist involvement in the cult of the emperor, those who refuse to say, Caesar is Lord and Savior, they will be excluded and suffer economically and they will suffer physically even. Some of them, many of them, thousands of them will suffer death. Thus, Jesus wants to give them this word of encouragement, but not only encouragement, also a word of warning. Because 
As we discovered when we walked through the seven letters, the seven messages in Revelation 2 and 3, not all these believers are ready. Not all these believers are walking faithfully with Jesus. Uh, when this persecution comes, some of them will lose their lives if they remain faithful, but many of them are not being faithful. Thus, the, the vital need for this book. You see, some of the believers in Asia had compromised with the empire. Some had compromised with sin. Some had, some had compromised sexually. We saw that sexual immorality in the letters was addressed. Some had compromised with oppressive economic uh, realities in the empire. We saw that in those letters. In other words, some were in bed with a harlot. Some were in bed with the prostitute Babylon. And Jesus, in the individual messages of, to each of these seven churches, calls them, calls His people to repent of all that is not right in their lives and to follow Him faithfully to walk in obedience, to turn from sin, to come out of Babylon, to not participate in her sins, to turn to Him in obedience and submission, to, to be faithful, to be loyal, to bow their knee to Him, to declare that He and He alone is Lord and Savior. Even if it means suffering. Even if it means death. Now after the visions of God's judgment upon Rome, and, and, and all upon all those who align themselves with Rome. Uh, and after the great vision of celebration, uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb that we looked at last week, we come to today to what a, a text that many refer to as the last battle. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read chapter 19, 11 to the end of the chapter, verse 21. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Here's what I want to do with you this morning in the time we have remaining. There are four questions that I want us to ask as we walk through the text. Uh, question number one, and this one we will spend the bulk of our time answering, and that is simply this, who do we see? Who do we see? Second question, what do we hear? Third question, what is missing? And fourth, what does this mean? How does this apply to our lives? So who do, you see? who do we see? What do we hear? What is missing? And what does this mean? So question number one, where we will focus most of our time, who do we see? In, in short... 
the answer is easy and quick. We, we can just say Jesus and move on, but there's so much more that needs to be said. Who do we see? We look here and we see Jesus, but we see Jesus unlike we typically see him. We've caught glimpses of Jesus like this earlier in the Revelation, particularly in chapter 1 on the Lord's Day when John was worshiping on the island of Patmos. And, and remember, he was, he was in the Spirit, and suddenly he heard a voice like a trumpet behind him, and he turned to see the voice, and he saw, he saw Jesus like this. But we don't typically think of Jesus in these terms when we think of Jesus. Uh, let me remind you of some of the images, a bit of the story of Jesus with which we are most familiar. The images that probably come uh, to our minds most readily when I say the name of Jesus. We know that Jesus lived some 2,000 years ago, that he was born to a teenage virgin mother, that he grew up in a rural hick town called Nazareth. He led a very simple life for the first 30 years of his life. Uh, we don't know that he traveled to any major city. He didn't write a book. In fact, we don't know that he wrote anything. He never held political office. He, he never made a lot of money. He lived a life uh, with relative obscurity, uh, likely working with his adoptive father, Joseph, as a carpenter, his blue-collar work. We know that around the age 30, he began his public ministry, uh, a ministry uh, that included teaching and preaching, uh, some healing, and other miracles. We know that his ministry spanned a few short years, likely around three. The gospel accounts present Jesus as a simple, humble, marginalized Galilean peasant. He spent most of his time, most of his ministry around Galilee, occasionally going into Jerusalem. He hung out mostly with a ragtag group of men, 12 men, some fishermen, a tax collector, one Israeli terrorist, a few others. He often told people when he performed miracles not to tell other people about it, as if he wanted to, 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 to remain low-key. And, and though he taught large crowds when they sought to make him king, he resisted, and he retreated to quiet places where he could be alone and spend time in prayer. Jesus is often in the, in the Scriptures portrayed as gentle, and kind, and patient, and compassionate. He treated women and children with incredible dignity in a culture where that was rare. He came to the defense of the defenseless. He, he cared for the rejects like lepers and Samaritans. He, he wandered around Palestine without a place to call home. And in time, eventually, Jesus uh, traveled to Jerusalem where he was arrested, tried as an insurrectionist, convicted of charges that the that Pilate knew were false. He was convicted, flogged, and killed, executed in one of the most cruel ways humanity has ever devised. And in weakness and humiliation, he died at the hands of Rome, the same Rome that is coming down upon the church in Asia Minor just a number of decades later. This is the story of Jesus that we are most familiar with. When we think of Jesus, typically these are kinds of these are the thoughts that come to our mind. And, and these are all true. These are all true and important things to recognize about Jesus. About how he the incarnation uh, in the incarnation he humbled himself and he lived a simple life of obedience to the Father. However, what we are confronted with today is the truth that there is more to Jesus than just this story that we gather from the gospels far more. And this morning, as we unpack our text in Revelation 19, there is much that we need to see and take to heart 
Uh, before we look at the descriptions here in our text of Jesus, uh, a quick aside. Our text opens in verse 11 with the fourth time that heaven is said to be open. In fact, the fourth time that the, the, the word open appears in the Revelation. The first time was back in chapter 4 where we read, I saw heaven standing open. That was uh, chapter 4 and 5, John's uh, vision of the heavenly throne room. I saw heaven open before me. A second time... Uh, the second time was in Revelation 11:19, after the seventh trumpet blast. It seems like the story of Revelation at that point is coming in for, for its conclusion. It doesn't. We know that. But there's heaven is open. Then God's temple in heaven was open and thunder and lightning and this theophany, this vision of God in all His glory and power. The third time is Revelation 15:5, just before we witnessed the outpouring of seven bowls of God's wrath. We read, after this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple and it was open. Now here for the fourth time, we hear that same word, heaven standing open. And what is it John sees? Well, the short answer was Jesus. But here, let's walk through what he describes here. First, John sees a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is not the first time that we encounter a white horse in the Revelation. In fact, some people uh, think that this is the same uh, same horse, the same rider, and I contended that it's not. The first white horse we encountered back in Revelation 6. Remember the breaking of the seals? Uh, the first four seals are broken and we see four horsemen. The first one is, is a rider on a white horse who, who rides out to conquer, bent on conquest with a bow. And, and I contended and would contend with great passion that that, that is not Jesus. That, that what we see in the four horsemen of Revelation 6 with the breaking of the seals are rather the forces of, of evil resisting the inbreaking of God's kingdom. As God's kingdom comes, these forces of evil and humanity's rebellion and resistance break out. The white horse represents uh, conquest, uh, war. The second horse represents violence. The third, famine. The fourth, death. These are the forces unleashed on the planet. The, the point is that, that as humanity rebels against the inbreaking kingdom, these forces are galloping across the surface of the planet. The first white horse is not Jesus on the horse, but the second one is. If you're betting on horses, bet on this one. This is Jesus. This is a different white horse not bent on conquest. Jesus comes and He is faithful and true. He, he, is, he is the faithful revelation of God. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. He is the faithful revelation of God to the world. And He is faithful to His Father in obedience, in submission to the Father's will. Not my will, but Your will. Obeying all the way to the cross. And He is true. He is reliable, genuine. He can be counted on. Daryl Johnson puts it this way, the point being that Jesus can therefore be the judge of all humanity for He alone has what it takes to judge righteously. No one has anything on Him. There is nothing in Jesus' closet that can be brought out at a news conference to discredit Him. He is faithful and true charging out on a white horse. Second, we read that His eyes are like a blazing fire. This was part of the description that we encountered earlier in, in Revelation 1 when John turned on the Lord's Day. He, he heard the, the voice like a trumpet. He turned and he saw Jesus in His glory, His majesty. Jesus' eyes there were like a blazing fire. Here he turns and he sees Jesus with these eyes that are pure, that are piercing, that, that are penetrating, that are purifying. Daryl Johnson says it well. His eyes not only look at us, but they look through us. 
Jesus misses nothing. Nothing is hidden from him. No one can pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. He looks right into our face, right into the face of his enemies. We and they are leveled. Third, we read on, and we read that on his head are many crowns. Now, a crown was a sign of authority. A crown was a sign of sovereignty. And Jesus is said to wear many crowns. Many crowns on one head. What does that look like? How are we supposed to even picture that? Well, you know, it's, it's imagery. Let's not get lost there. But, but what does this remind us of? We've encountered this kind of language earlier in the Revelation. Remember when we were introduced to the, the dragon that is Satan? He was represented as, as this this dragon with seven heads and seven crowns in chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, we, we met the two beasts, the agents of Satan. And be, the first beast, the beast out of the sea, has seven heads and ten crowns. Here, we come to Jesus. And Jesus has only one head, but he has many crowns. He has, he has many more crowns. More crowns than the dragon. More crowns than the beast. Jesus has more authority. Jesus has more sovereignty. He has all authority and sovereignty. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, as we will see momentarily. Fourth, Jesus is said to have a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Now, this may seem strange. What's up with this? He has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. You know, a couple things. First, a lot of ink has been spilt trying to figure out what this name is. But that seems to me to be wrong-headed. After all, we're told that only he knows it. I mean, if we were supposed to know it, I think it would have been revealed to us. It's a name that only he knows. Now, why is that? Well, the second thing to note is that in the ancient world, to know someone's name was to, uh, there was this understanding that it gave you some power over that person or God. I mean, we even see that in our own in our own world, if you call out to someone, you call, call out your, hey, Bill, and your friend's walking, he'll turn around and look at you, or Susan. Or, or parents, if you are trying to get the attention of one of your children at a particular moment, and you use their full name, Brennan John Wheats, likely you will get their attention. It, it, it's a demonstration of control over them. So Jesus has a name that no one knows except for himself, because no one has authority over Jesus. Jesus is the authority over every authority. No one else has that authority over him. Fifth, Jesus is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, the question that we are faced when we come here is the question of whose blood? Whose blood is his robe dipped in? Is it, is it dipped in the blood of his enemies? This Jesus as he comes marching to war? Is it dipped in the blood from the winepress of the fury of God's wrath from the end of chapter 14? Or is it dipped in his own blood? And if you read scholars, they're probably split and there's some ambiguity, but I want to contend that, that I think this is pointing to his own blood. That is, Jesus, even back in chapter 14, the, the winepress of the fury of God's wrath, the place of God's judgment was outside the city. And I drew your attention to the fact that that, that outside the city reminds us of the location of the cross, the location where Jesus suffered and died. It was on the cross outside of the city that Jesus bore God's judgment in our place. And so I would suggest, whose blood is this? makes sense to me that it's his own blood. After all, he's, he's on his way to war. He hasn't been there yet. It's, it's his own blood. His blood where, where, that he shed in our place 
sacrificing himself, bearing God's just judgment for our sin, for our wickedness, for our rebellion. He rides out on this white horse with his robe dipped in blood. Sixth, his name is the Word of God. Remember the original recipient of this revelation, John, the disciple of Jesus. Now an old man, now in his mid-80s, he had followed Jesus around. He was one of that ragamuffin group of 12 who spent their lives for three years following Jesus. John, who penned the Gospel of John, most likely. John, who wrote the beginning of his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The one on the horse is the Word of God. Lastly, a few things to observe. It is said, sorry, seventh, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. His words, the words of this one on this white horse, his words are powerful. He speaks and it is done. He speaks and demons flee. He speaks and blindness is healed. He speaks and dead men come out of their graves. He speaks with power. The last few things, we read that he will rule the nations. He treads the winepress of God's, the fury of God's wrath. It is true, even if I'm correct in saying that the, his robe is dipped in his own blood, his blood has flowed. And for all who put their trust in him, they receive his grace and his forgiveness. For those who resist, they will face God's judgment. There will be their own blood that flows as well. And Jesus has a name written on his robe and on his leg, tattooed on his leg, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Cross his robe, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the one who is above all others. And as we reflect on this description of Jesus, the, the image of Jesus riding a mighty white war horse with, with a powerful word, with eyes blazing with fire, with the name King of Kings and, and Lord of Lords, with many crowns on his head, all of these descriptions of Jesus, we see this picture of Jesus that, that stands out from sometimes the images that we have of Jesus. Be a little unexpected. In high school, I had a, a science teacher, Mr. Hebert. He was a smallish man, chin-strap beard. Some of you will understand. Kind of very Mennonite. Very, very good man. I think a godly man. Loved Jesus. Very gentle man. Soft-spoken. I remember one day in class, he was telling us about the blueberry patch that he was growing on his farm. And we were sitting there, you know, listening or not really listening. I don't remember. But suddenly he got his attention because he, he started talking about there were so many crows coming and, and eating all his blueberries. And then he said, I don't know how many crows I shot yesterday. We, we just, this was not an image of Mr. Hebert we had you know, with a gun taking out crows in his field. It was quite unexpected. Here we see an image of Jesus that, that stands in con stark contrast to what we often might think. I mean, this is the ultimate fighter Jesus. There's nothing wimpy about Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus that inspires awe. This is a Jesus that can take you out. And what we will see is that He will if you are not among the redeemed. The enemies of Jesus will be judged. They will be destroyed. 
This is divine warrior image imagery that echoes what we see throughout the Old Testament. There are not in the scriptures, as some people struggle with or would claim, there are not two gods, the God of the Old Testament who's angry and wrathful and the God of the New Testament who's gentle and kind. There's one God who is holy and just and will pour out his wrath on sin. And there's a God who in his love and his grace and his compassion has come to earth in the person of the Son to bear that in our place so that through faith we need not face his judgment. Our blood need not flow. Now I want us to remember that this is imagery, this is symbolism, but the point cannot be watered down. Jesus is one whom all humanity must take seriously. He is coming in power. He is coming to set all things right. He will judge all the forces of evil and all those who align themselves with evil. Leads us to question two, what do we hear? Following this description of Jesus coming in power and majesty, we hear an invitation. It's an invitation that stands in stark contrast to the invitation we read about last Sunday. Last week we read, blessed are those invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Here we find something far different and quite honestly quite gory actually. There's a meal. Birds are invited to the supper of God. This meal is a radically different sort of meal than the meal we read about last week. We read again verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. A little grotesque, is it not? This is an invitation to carry on birds, that is, birds that will scavenge, that will eat the carcasses of dead things. They are invited to come to this supper of God, it's called, to come eat the carcasses of all those who fall in God's to God's judgment, great and small, king and slave, kings, generals, and the mighty. This is a horrific picture of judgment. It leads us to question three, what is missing? And this is perhaps the most intriguing question to ask in this text. What is missing? I noted earlier that this section of the Revelation is often called the last battle. And a great deal of ink has been spilt speculating about this end-time war, this end-time battle. What will this look like? When will it happen? Where is it going to be? But, but here's what is crucial for us to know. Uh, this. This battle is never fought. The warrior Jesus rides out of heaven, mighty and glorious, in power. He, he's followed by the armies of heaven, the redeemed, dressed in fine linen, the beast and the kings of the earth gather together, uh, together to wage war against Jesus and his armies. But then nothing, there's no war. Did you notice that when we read it? Look, the kings of the earth and the armies gather to make war against Christ and his army, but the war is not fought. Jesus wins simply by showing up. He wins simply by showing up because of who He is, because of what He has already done. You see, the final battle was won at the cross. The death of Jesus on the cross was the defeat of the dragon. It was the defeat of the beast from the sea and the false prophet. It was the, beast, it was the defeat of evil. And all evil could throw at Him as He hung there bearing God's just judgment for our sin. As He endured the worst that evil could throw at Him. He was waging war on all that was wrong with his creation. 
And then he breathed his last and he died. But death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him. Jesus came out of the grave. Remember Jesus when we met him in Revelation 1? He said, I have the keys of death and of Hades. Death could not hold him. Jesus rose victorious, conquering death and sin and the devil. And here he rides to victory, a victory that is already his. Daryl Johnson says this, Jesus Christ rides simply to finally implement the victory of the cross. When Jesus shows up, the false prophet and the beast are captured and thrown into the lake of fire. And the birds devour all those who align themselves with the dragon and the beast. See, the war is not fought because the war has already been won. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes this, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Leads us to our fourth question. What does this mean? Remember, one, once more, remember who the original recipients of this were. Remember what they were facing. The year is 96 A.D. Rome is at the peak of its might and its glory. And under Domitian, the cult of the emperor is raging. And the emperor is about to crack down on all those who refuse to play the game, all those who refuse to proclaim with the rest of the empire, Domitian is Lord and Savior. Those who remain faithful are about to be crushed. And it is into that context that Jesus gives this vision, this vision of Himself, the heavenly divine warrior, in glory and majesty and power and authority, coming to implement a victory that is already won. A, a, a victory that does not hang in the balance. A, a victory that is absolutely certain. This vision serves as a remarkable word of encouragement to those who are about to suffer, those who are suffering. To take heart and to remain faithful no matter what they face. But it is also a sober warning to those who are not ready. Those who are not right with God. Remember, this is a discipleship manual. This is about helping believers be ready and faithful, remain faithful to Jesus, to live lives of loyalty to Jesus. And Jesus, in His letters, in this revelation, He called to many, five of the seven churches, He called them to repent because they were not ready. They were in bed with a the harlot. They were flirting with the empire. And He called them to repentance and to faithfulness. Follow after Him. And so this is a word of encouragement on the one hand, but it is a word of warning on the other. So, what about for us? What is Jesus saying to you? What is Jesus saying to me? Now, let me put it another way. If this vision were to become reality today, if we would see Jesus burst through the clouds on this white horse today, what would be our response? Would it be one of joy and delight? And anticipation, or would it be one of fear and trembling? What we each need to ask is this Is my life marked by faithfulness to Jesus? Is my life marked by growing obedience rooted in faith? No, I'm not talking about obedience that is perfect. We're never going to get there. But is my life marked by faithfulness to Jesus, the one who gave himself for me? 
Or am I simply playing the religious game, showing up on Sundays, logging on on Sundays, going through some motions, but really my life is, is more marked by the empire that I live in, more marked by the beast? Am I growing? Do, do I desire to grow in obedience? Do I desire to grow in faithfulness? Do, do I desire to, to love Jesus more than I recognize that I do right now? Have I fully surrendered to Him or am I playing games with myself? If I saw Jesus charging towards me on this white horse, would I be filled with joy or trembling? If you're here this morning and you have never surrendered your life, whether you're here physically or with us online, and you've never surrendered your life to to Jesus, I urge you to do so today. Jesus shed His blood for you. Jesus shed His blood for each one of us. He bore the punishment that our sin, that our rebellion, that our unfaithfulness means we deserve. And it is only through faith in Him that that we are washed clean, that we are forgiven and made whole. And, and, And not just washed clean, but then imputed with His righteousness. That is, we are credited with His faithfulness. And we are transformed. We move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are adopted as His daughters, as His sons, to live new lives. Lives of growing obedience. Lives of growing faithfulness. And so if you have never repented, if you've never surrendered, I urge you, even today, to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need You. You are my only hope. He is the only one who will satisfy you. He is the only one who can redeem you. He is the only one that can spare you this day of judgment. Listen, all of us. One thing that this text makes clear, especially in conjunction with the text we looked at last week, is this. That everyone's destiny is a sufferer. Everyone's destiny is a sufferer. You will either enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb in the presence of Jesus, your Savior, or you will be supper and face the judgment of God. That is the choice. That is the destiny, choice of destinies before every single one of us. Everyone's destiny is a supper. Remember, I mentioned as I opened this morning that The American war on drugs after five decades nearly and billions and billions of dollars. It's not a war that that I can stand here with any measure of confidence and say, yeah, I think it's going to come out right. But there is a war. The war between Jesus and all that is evil. And the outcome is certain. We know with absolute certainty the end already. John has shared that. Jesus has revealed that to us. We see it here. Jesus wins. Jesus is the victor. Jesus triumphs. We have absolute certainty. He is King over every King. He is Lord over every Lord. And at any moment, the curtains of history will be pulled back and Jesus will come running towards us. May we all be ready to rejoice. To rejoice and join Him at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Amen.